Well, last time I talked to the people from downtown. What was the last movie you went to? Miguel, what's new? Miguel, what's new in the community? Have you gotten any feedback about the Twitter feed? First of all, for the people who contact us on Twitter. About a certain research. Can you tell me more? Well, depends who you talk if you talk to the people from the board. Why did the yogurt... Welcome to another episode of the Community Board Podcast with your host Miguel Valdez. And today we have a full house here in our new setup uh, in, in partnership today with, with the Minnesota Research Link and our partners with the University of Minnesota and Mayo Clinic. Today we have our guests Emily Black and Jessica Goldtel. It's Gettle. How do you say that? Gettle. Where is that last name from, Jessica? Germany. Germany? Oh, have you gone back? Is no. It relatives down there? No, it's my husband's. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Okay. So, Emily and Jessica, I had the opportunity to attend to you guys' presentation last week at the Madonna Towers, which is, is um, how can you describe it? Describe it to our friends who are watching and listening. So Madonna Towers in Rochester is um, a kind of a, a step-down community, step-up community, um, where they have uh, independent living, assisted living, memory care, and um, skilled nursing. They have different facilities Mostly around. seniors? Yes. Yep, all seniors. Um, most uh, They have two different facilities in Rochester, and then they have one in Byron as well. Yep. So I was fortunate to attend to your presentation, and I got a chance to learn about hospice hospice care mm-hmm. and palliative care. Uh, I heard those terms, but I was not really familiar. Can you describe, let's start today's conversation with what is the differences between palliative care and hospice care? Who wants to take that? Sure. <clears throat> this is Emily. I'll take that one. So I think... Um, It's important to differentiate between hospice and palliative care, but also important to acknowledge that it's all really the same umbrella. And so for a definition of palliative care, I'm going to refer to the World Health Organization definition, which defines palliative care as an approach that improves the quality of life for patients and families facing problems associated with life-threatening illness through the prevention and relief of suffering by means of early identification and impeccable assessment of treatment of pain and other problems, physical, psychosocial, and spiritual. And I like to refer to uh, a definition because I think it's very important um, for educating Uh, patients, families, the public about these topics that we're all sort of operating from a same starting point. And so that's the overall definition of palliative care. And so what does palliative care do? What can it do for um, me as a patient, me for my family? So palliative care is going to take that um, kind of global holistic approach that perhaps Um, Sometimes in specialty practices, you know, your cardiologist, of course, is going to be very focused on your heart, or your oncologist may be very focused on your cancer, and appropriately so. Um, But the palliative care teams are um, 
it's really, it's defined as its own specialty and it's been around for about 20 years now. And so these are specialized teams of people from a variety of different disciplines that work together focusing on the whole patient, not just the cancer or the heart or the specific disease state. Um, and so anyone with a serious illness um, is going to be a, a candidate for palliative care. And so the palliative care teams are going to be not only focusing on relief of physical symptoms, but also all of the burdens that go along with a serious illness, the spiritual, the emotional, the financial, you know, the, the stressors uh, that come along uh, for caregivers. And so, um, so also, the, also the caregivers, very importantly, the caregivers, the family members that, you know, these serious illnesses um, can take a real toll on. And so these teams, physicians, nurse practitioners, PAs, nurses, uh, social workers, chaplains, massage therapists, music therapists, so just many different facets um, to really uh, look at the whole person and family to try to make life better throughout the course of this serious illness. Jessica, how did you get into this field? What is the background? Yeah, so I used case? I used to work in a long-term care facility um, right out of uh, nursing school. And, uh, of course, working with the geriatric population, we had a lot of hospice patients. And I just was very drawn to that um, that type of care. What kind of patients do you say? End-of-life patients, oh. so geriatric patients, elderly patients, um, but ones that were, um, you know, terminally ill and had, um, you know, a short period of time um, left in life. And, and I just was drawn to them and their families and um, became uh, close with the hospice teams that were coming into the facility and, and providing that care and just realized that that's what I wanted to be doing is, is providing that to, to patients. So. And what was your case, Emily? What was your experience? Actually, sort of similar. I, so I was a nurse at St. Mary's um, in an intensive care unit for five years. And then as a nurse practitioner, transitioned to um, skilled nursing facilities and also took care of uh, many patients at the end of life and really sort of found my niche there, realizing what a very important, special time this is uh, along someone's journey and what a sacred time is, is for their family. Um, which comes with many difficulties, um, obviously, but to to really be there and to be able to support these patients and families um, and to have them welcome us into that very intimate time um, is, is very rewarding. And, for example, uh, we just passed the holidays, we just passed Thanksgiving. Do you find there is a stigma within this topic when you're with family members to bring that well, these topics are readily yeah. discussed <laughs> with my family members. Um, so I think it, it, it varies, certainly. Um, I openly discuss these things with you know, my husband, our parents, grandparents, and so I've made a point to try to normalize the topic in my family, but you know, that's not always the case. And um, with our Madonna Towers presentation, so we saw that um, probably the majority of those people had advanced directives, um, which is wonderful. But what is an advanced directive for people? So that's uh, a document that's outlining someone's wishes. Okay. okay, so if they're unable to speak for themselves, um, it outlines 
you know, specifically what their wishes would be. But I thought it was fascinating that um, while the majority had the advanced directive, many of them had not discussed it with their family members. Oh, they haven't, but they haven't. Right, right. And so that is a very important piece. You need to... So you can put in your advanced directive, I don't want to be resuscitated. I'd rather don't take this medication just to relax towards the end? Or what do you usually see on those? So the advanced directive... uh, Oftentimes we'll address, you know, the code status if they want to attempt that resuscitation, you know, in the event that they their heart stops and they die, would they want the chest compressions or shocks, those types of things. Um, but also can expand further on, you know, states of quality of life that they wouldn't find acceptable. Or oftentimes we see if I can't meaningfully interact with family members that would be unacceptable to me Um, so there's sort of a whole spectrum of specifics that people put in those advanced directives tube feedings antibiotics Um, so some are very very specific and some are a little bit more vague so that's very individualized Um, but again if you can have this document but if you haven't told your family members um, what's in there or you know, some of those more robust conversations about what your wishes would be. Um, it, it can be difficult for family members to sometimes interpret what's in those advanced directives. And in your case, your department is, what is the name of your department? So Are we're... Are under nursing, department of nursing or palliative care? What? So we're under the palliative, the division of palliative care. Okay. That's the hospice division. So my question then is... Who and how do you get referrals for new? Um, so, so yeah, anyone uh, anyone can make a referral. Um, the patient can make their own referral to hospice. Um, a provider can make a referral. Family member, friend, uh, caregiver, anyone can actually make a referral. Um, and then our intake department goes um, through the <clears throat> excuse me the the track of seeing if they qualify for our services or not. Okay. So. So, and I also, I remember during your presentation, I think one of the criteria was that a patient has to be given a six-month life expectation, is that correct, for receiving palliative care, or is that for something else? Yes, so for palliative care, um, the patient um, just has to have the diagnosis of a serious illness. Um, so that's that's a long list, and so that can be that can be cancer, heart failure, um, multiple sclerosis, dementia, um, an accident, some, right? So a, a serious illness that we expect to be a chronic issue that they're dealing with, and um, so a patient can continue to receive curative treatments, can continue to receive chemotherapy for their cancer, um, those aggressive treatments, and still be followed by palliative care. And so where that shifts um, to hospice eligibility is sort of when the goals shift and when two physicians agree that the patient is likely within six months of the end of life if the disease runs its expected course. And so that's that's really where, um, within the palliative care, the shift to hospice happens. When so hospice <coughs> is under the umbrella of right, of right. So if palliative care is a big umbrella, hospice is under the umbrella. Um, but there's a bit more specific criteria to qualify for hospice. And so when there's no longer curative treatments 
as options, or oftentimes we see that patients uh, decide to no longer pursue those treatments. So maybe the side effects of the chemotherapy are becoming you know, intolerable to their quality of life, and they opt to stop those. Um, so, so really, um, a difference with hospice is that we're n- no longer seeking a cure. We're focusing on comfort and quality of life with whatever time it is we have remaining for that patient. And again, that that six months is um, really the general Medicare guideline. But we have patients that have been on hospice for two years, you know, and so um, if you exceed that time frame, you know, as long as you continue to meet those qualifying criteria, we'll, you know, continue to walk along with you. And what has been your experience with the stigma of bringing, bringing up that conversation? How do you guys, I mean, trying to promote that conversation? Because it's, at the end, it's healthy for the whole family and the caregivers. Absolutely. And really, that's that's what we're out in the community <laughs> trying to um, spread that message. And and you know, in our presentation, we talked about a lot of those myths associated with hospice. And I think if I had my way, we'd call hospice something else, right? Because I think people are very scared of that word hospice. Um, you know, of course, because I think there's the misconception that oh, I sign on with hospice and I'm going to be dead in three days. Mm-hmm. Right. And and so sometimes, well, oftentimes we see people um, sort of resist, you know, the, uh, the care that could be very, very beneficial, um, just sort of out of that fear of what hospice is and, and what that means. Uh, because really, you know, we referenced uh, a study in our presentation that, you know, with palliative care, um, patients actually live longer and they live better. You know, so um, the sooner that patients get to us, whether it's palliative care, um, you know, as a bridge to hospice or get to hospice, you know, the more good that we can do. And this is a Medicare benefit that is 100% covered by Medicare. And so if people qualify, you know, we certainly want them to take advantage of this wonderful, wonderful Mm -hmm. service. Also, we find out that palliative care is, is mostly received uh, at 86% of the individuals receiving uh, hospice care in the United States were Caucasian. How can we in- increase those numbers? Uh, for example, African American is only 8.3% for Hispanics and Latinos to uh, 1.0%. And Asians also receiving 1.2%, uh, Hispanics 2.1%. How can we increase or, or bring this conversation? I mean, I know we're doing this here today, <laughs> but um, what has been your experience in, in, in the field? Or do you see diversity in at least here? I mean, I think, I think, you know, we do see the diversity growing. Um, I think that it, it, we have obviously a lot of room to, to grow. And I, I think, again, it's this the public knowledge and um, getting getting um, it out there, what we can do for these patients and their families. Also, you know, there is, you know, cultural backgrounds that, um, you know, kind of divide our services and, and what we do for people. And um, and that, that can be a barrier, but um, I think 
uh, we've had really good experiences with um, different cultures and um, once they get to understand what we do um, I think it's it's been it's been good it, yeah go. yeah so I will say um, in a previous presentation within the last few months we'd looked at these numbers and um, I am encouraged that while these numbers are still much too low, the the overall trend in all cultures is is increasing for opting for hospice. So I think um, also one of the barriers perhaps is even way further upstream from hospice and palliative care, sort of the end of life conversations, whether it's primary care or hospitalists, and and really recognizing because we do find within the different cultures, there are very, very different beliefs, mm-hmm. um, you know, unique to each culture. And so, um, and the more that we learn mm-hmm. and understand, um, builds our skill set in, in how best to have these conversations and, you know, be, have that cultural competence and, and the um, respect for different practices and and sometimes we find things that are really outside of the mainstream mm-hmm. um, of end-of-life care. And so learning how to, um, you know, respectfully navigate all of those cultural um, idiosyncrasies um, toward very end of life. But I think um, more understanding even before they get to palliative care and hospice, um, you know, about some of the reservations that people have. Um, some cultures, you know, don't want to talk mm-hmm. about end of life whatsoever. Mm-hmm. It's bad, <laughs> um, you know, bad energy, you know, all these things. And so um, there's still a lot of work to be done, certainly, yeah. within the cultural and arena. I know this is a really heavy mm-hmm. topic to be talking among friends and family. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine you as a working on this field, what has been the most gratitude, the most uh, uplifting moments for you guys, experiences. I know you're dealing with somebody who has a, a really stressful moment, but also how, how does that bring you joy for the work that you guys do? Oh, gosh. I think that could be a whole other podcast. <laughs> um, I, I feel like um, in every experience that we have with patients and their families, like, some portion of that can be taken um, away from it to to just be uplifting. Um, you know, when you get the call in the middle of the night and you have to rush out to a home and, and help these families, you know, you, you leave there going, this is why I do this, you know, so you can be there and help support them and walk them through this. And the the gratitude from them and how you know, grateful they are that we're there for them, that they have this number to call 24 hours a day, I think is just priceless. So you can show up at home, mm-hmm. at a hospital, wherever they're being receiving care? Yeah, so our hospice team um, provides care, you know, wherever the patient is, you know, whether that's home, uh, skilled facility, assisted living, foster care. Um, as far as the palliative care piece, um, there are many different avenues um, in our community to access palliative care. Um, so there's inpatient service, um, outpatient appointments. We have a palliative homebound group of nurse practitioners that makes home visits. We have a pediatric palliative care team. 
Um, so we really have wonderful access to the palliative care. Um, but yes, as far as the hospice, you know, we go where they are, whether it's a camper, <laughs> whether, um, hotel. yeah, hotel. Um, so wherever they need us is, is where we go. Mm-hmm. And I was going to ask you, does most of the insurance, how to, who covers this type of service? Yeah, so hospice is covered um, 100% by Medicare, okay. um, also covered by Medicaid and most commercial insurances. And so if there's um, ever a prior authorization, you know, we have so our... So the doctor have to say, yep, they're qualified for it yeah, in these conditions. And we have uh, a you know, billing department that works with prior authorizations or anything that, any assistance that might be needed. Do you guys find the rural communities have access or do they struggle to get, or do they have barriers to get access to, to palliative care in your experience, at least in this part of the state, which is, a way, I guess we can say semi-rural, but we're, mm-hmm. we're not? So I... All of southeast Minnesota, I believe. Um, so the Mayo Clinic Rochester Hospice um, has a fairly large service area, you know, up to Lake City, um, down to near the Iowa border, Grand Meadow, Mazeppa. Um, so we cover quite a, an area here. So I think all of southeast Minnesota is covered. And you go rural, you go mm-hmm. wherever. Wherever. Choose. Yes. Um, I, I think there are some areas in far northern Minnesota because um, mm-hmm. sometimes our patients travel to those places and you know we don't have a hospice to contact with. Mm-hmm. Um, so certainly um, in areas of Minnesota, but also certainly, you know, areas throughout the country, you know, there are going to be those problematic. Uh, and can you... Try to describe me, you guys, um, a, a visit, what a palliative care visit looks like, or each case barriers a lot. Or you have like a checklist at least that you go through I mean, your typical visit. So, when is um, not the end? Say that again. No, no, when is that last moment? Just you a standard know, visit. Just a yeah. standard visit. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. so um, we, you know, so as from hospice, we have several different um, uh, services that we can offer a patient, and so we have our nurses that will go out and do um, assessments, and so they'll be, you know, monitoring the patient's symptoms and observing how they're doing at home, um, watching their medications, um, just kind of the looking at them as a whole and how they're doing, and we report back to our providers, our nurse practitioners, and our medical directors, and the primary care provider, um, and uh, determine if any changes need to be made. We then have aides that can go into a home and provide um, personal care. So if they need help bathing or showering or just um, you know changing clothes and, and cleaning up for the day, we can offer services to help with that. We have social workers that can help with psychosocial issues. Um, they can help with financial issues. Um, kind of a lot of things that come up that you don't think about. Um, they're there to help support. And then uh, we have chaplains on our, our team that can provide that spiritual care. We have volunteers that um, can uh, be of companionship, provide respite. We have... Um, you have a, like a, some alternative 
therapies? Yep, music therapy and massage therapy. Uh, We have some pet therapy now. Um, So lots of different things that can can be a part of those visits on a on a regular schedule. Um, But as far as nursing visits, yeah, those are. It's more of like an assessment, um, something that you would go to the doctor for, but you you don't have to now. You can just stay in your own home, and we can provide that care right there. And I just want to highlight, so when a patient is admitted to hospice, one of the first things that we talk about is what are your goals? What's important to you? And, you know, whether some people have very specific goals, I want to make it to my daughter's wedding, I want to, um, you know, very specific events that they're looking forward to. You know, sometimes it's, um, I want my pain managed, you know, but we, we discuss those from the beginning and we're always working toward, and as a team discussing the patients meeting their goals, they're not meeting their goals. What do we need to do differently? And so it's very important to us that we hear from them right from the beginning, you know, what's important to you, what's important to your family, you know, how do you, I think, a big part from the beginning is is wading into some of those tough conversations. How do you see the your death? You know, do you want to be at home? Who do you want to be here? You know, so so some of those tough things to think about. But we also, I think, typically is the case people want to talk about mm-hmm. these things. Do you find out that yes, they have, like, <laughs> yes, know what you know, they, mm-hmm. um, they have and. So we'll hear often, oh, I've been thinking about this, but we've never actually talked about it or, you know, and so um, just a lot of those conversations to really, you know, so patients can really get out what they're feeling and what their wishes are, you know, surrounding, surrounding the end of life. I also remember when you, during your public presentation, you asked them, uh, who has a directive, what's it called, directive? Advanced directive. Advanced directive, Mm -hmm. document. And most, a lot of people raise their hands. But then you ask, do you know where it is? Or do you know where to have it? Where it's supposed to be? And uh, uh, that was very nice to see the people say, yeah, it's on the fridge. And you mentioned that's kind of standard. So for first responders to find it? Yeah, so we, um, in that presentation, talked quite a bit, actually, about, so there's uh, the advanced directive, and then there's also another document called the POLST form, and that's the Provider Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment. And so the POLST form is sort of an abbreviated advanced directive, um, and that has, it's a one-page, very specific code status, full code, DNR, DNI. Um, What's that mean? So the full code is the shocks and chest compressions okay. and a full aggressive treatments. And then the DNR, DNI, you know, no resuscitation, no chest compressions, shocks, no breathing tube. Okay. Okay. And then... And who's that intended for? For first responders or for... Right. So... It goes on the fridge, so we always encourage uh, all of our patients, we um, encourage them to to put that on the fridge because that is um, a standard now within our community that the first responders will go to the fridge um, to to see if that document is there. Um, The advanced directive isn't as easy to put on the fridge because it's oftentimes many pages, and so the nice thing about the post form is that it's very, very concise, and it it is the form there's a minnesota specific form 
And so it's, it's going to be the same form for every patient. So the advanced directives might look a little different for each patient. So the pulse um, clearly and concisely communicates um, the, the code status um, and sort of basic wishes you know, that the patient is going to want if in the event a first responder's EMS shows up and the patient isn't able to speak for themselves. So, okay, I have another question. So if you guys had a magic wand, what would you like to see on the field of palliative care? <laughs> yes, um, I think I would like to see the fear disappear. I think the, the fear and the misconceptions surrounding palliative care and hospice um, prevent people from um, getting the most out of these really wonderful um, specialties that um, really our, our sole purpose is to make life better. You know, whatever time frame we're working with, no one has a crystal ball. Um, but our, our number one goal is to improve quality of life and comfort for patients and families. And, and so I would just like to see everyone embrace the, this specialty and really take full advantage of all the wonderful things that it has to offer. Do you guys receive or seek uh, help too? As a, you know, because you were dealing with all these emotions too. Mm -hmm. Like uh, when I talk with a psychiatrist and I ask, I ask uh, how do you, uh, how do you flush these mm -hmm. things out of your because you're dealing with somebody else's problem, and then you bring those problems, and it's not affecting you. Do you guys seek some help too? Because no matter what, you connect with these individuals, and it's, it's uh, I'm imagining it takes a toll. Right, mm -hmm. it, it can be very emotional, um, certainly, and I think we're very fortunate. Um, our division places a very high value on self-care and resilience. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, we have different activities that we do as a team, um, you know, to help uh, maintain that resilience. And we have very, very supportive leadership and just support, you know, amongst our team. Um, and certainly some cases are mm -hmm. very, very trying. Um and I think we have our own self-care practices <laughs> that we have to be very intentional <laughs> about maintaining. You want to weigh in on that, Jessica? Um, yeah, so going back to your, <clears throat> your first question, <clears throat> excuse me, if we had that magic wand, and I, I do agree with Emily that I think, you know, you know taking the fear out of um, the community and um, uh, reassuring them that, you know, what we can provide is is so beneficial. Um, with that, I would you know, with with this opportunity and with our you know public speaking and such, you know, providing that education. Like anytime we can get a platform to give this education to anyone, I think is a is a great opportunity because you know we're 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 having to deal with this every day, and so we can answer a lot of those questions that so many have those fears about. Um, and so I think we, we, we love that opportunity to be able to talk through that with, with anyone, caregivers, patients, families. Um, but yeah, as far as, you know, what we go through day to day and, um, how we deal with that, I think we do, we, we work with an, a, an amazing team 
and um, we're all there to support each other. And there are some days that are harder than others, and um, we we just we really stick together to make sure that we're all taking care of ourselves, um, so we can get through the next day too. Do you guys have any tips for now during this time when we gather with family and friends during holidays to bring up these conversations? I know it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> we had this question actually right after our Madonna Towers talk, and so I think a great segue would be, oh, I listened to this great podcast. Okay. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, I guess for me it's just – the conversation is so normalized um, Mm -hmm. in my house, but I know, um, and even when people try to bring it up, they can meet a lot of resistance. Um, And so I think really just, because I feel like sometimes people have to bring things up a number of times, um, because I think it's that fear of facing Reality. Facing the reality mm-hmm. of facing, um, not even, and I will admit, I don't have an advanced directive. Yeah, but you <laughs> know I do what? at yeah. home, it's not done. Yeah. <laughs> I remember somebody mentioned that, that they said that they wish they were called earlier. Mm-hmm. Because once they got the support for the caregivers and, and the, the family member who was that was taking care of his family member. Yeah, I mean, I think the, what we hear over and over is that people's only regret about palliative care and hospice is that they waited so long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, anything else that you guys wants to add? Do you want to share with our friends and family? Do you have any questions, Ian, coming up? Uh, Ian or camera, cameraman. Uh, None right now, no. Okay. I will just share a quick story that Jessica had shared during our talk. Um, So one of our patients who we had for almost a year, um, one of her hospice goals was to learn something new. And so she had um, visits with the music therapist, and she learned to play the ukulele. And I think that's just such a great example of... You know, none of this hospice palliative care means that life is over, means that these opportunities for um, growth or doing the things that are important to you are are done. That's not it at all. And so she's a great example. Um, you know, she met her goal, and she loved every minute of it. And so I'd like to leave people with that, that, that hospice and palliative care are here to make your life better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to encourage everybody to click on the link. We're going to be providing here the link uh, of the palliative care uh, department. And I want to invite you also to share this podcast with your friends and family. Share the link here. Give a follow to our partnership, to our friends who are partnering today, to the Minnesota Research Link. Also, give us... uh, you can find this podcast on the Community Board Podcast on iTunes, also on SoundCloud. You can find us on the Community Board Podcast. We're going to be sharing this episode also on our Facebook page, where you can find us on the Community Board. Also on Twitter, you can find us on the Community Board. Ladies, when is, uh, do you see any time of the year where you guys are busier, or is always... <laughs> How does that work? 
right now. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah, the holidays tend to be a, a busier time for us. I think um, yeah, people, you know, if they're seeking treatment, kind of realize, come to a realization that maybe they, they don't want to be fighting that battle as hard anymore over the holidays and they don't want to be at the doctor as much anymore. And so um, they, they're more looking for that quality of life. And so they want to go home, they want to be with their families, and they, they need our support to do that. So, yeah. I have a question. This is kind of on the personal side. Um, do you find that when usually people is towards the end of life, they kind of bounce back right before uh, they're about to transit, about to die? Because I remember my grandpa, he, he had a cancer and then uh, attacked his nerve system. And then the day when he died, all that day he came back. He was awake. He was. He wanted the curtains open. He wanted to see the sun. He wanted to be outside. He was complaining about the doctor. He was complaining about everyone. We're like, whoa, he's back. He's. And then that night he was gone. He was incredible. I don't know if this is. Do you guys see that a lot? Uh, yeah, so that's actually a very common occurrence that people rally and muster all their energy to have a meaningful, you know, interaction with friends and family, and then shortly thereafter, you know, they end up dying. Yeah, for us, it was mm -hmm. it was really incredible. We were calling all the aunts and cousins, and like, could guys come over? I will say, too, um, it's not uncommon that we see people, once they enroll in hospice, you know, whether that, you know, they're stopping their chemo and, and some of these treatments and now they have all this extra support. And so patients oftentimes, you know, for a time do better, <laughs> do better, you know, after enrolling in hospice, you know, having that support. Yeah, and, in your presentation, yeah. you also mm -hmm. mentioned that uh, you and your team go over with the doctors to decide which medicines to take out because they're already, their conditions are no treating them and then patients get better because they're not having all these right mm -hmm. and that's i think another misconception is that all oh, hospice is going to come in and take all my medications away and it's certainly not that but we with the team very intentionally review the medications because oftentimes people have been taking these medications sort of habitually for many many years and so we really take a hard look hey is this benefiting you anymore and um and sometimes you know there are certainly medications that we leave if we if they're contributing to to their quality of life but oftentimes many of those medications you know really are no longer appropriate and so um people are often relieved to not have to <laughs> take so many medications yeah well i want to say jessica and emily thank you so much for the work that you guys do uh take a special person to be dealing uh, with this during those tough times uh, with, with somebody else. Uh, and thank you again for agreeing to be our <laughs> guest today and for the presentations that you guys do around the community. And again, I want to invite everybody to stay tuned, find us on the community board, podcast on iTunes, and if you have something that you would like to share with the community, please contact us and we'll have you here. What last time? All right. I well, thank you. Thank you. Again, and, uh, let's go for a walk. Thank you. Have you gotten any feedback about the Twitter feed?
first of all, for the people who contact us on Twitter. About a certain research. Can you tell me more? Well, depends who you talk, if you talk to the people from the board. Why did the yogurt go to the art museum? Did you see in the news? To get more culture. <laughs>